Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Whenever you are and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way we love it to be, and that is completely free thanks to our sponsors this week, Mac Weldon and Squarespace. Squarespace, they bring the show to you. DLC, of course, the show all about games and their many forms, games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata. That's spelled with two N's and one T, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis. The guy whose team is currently trailing my team two games to one in the Western Conference Finals. Hello, Christian. Hello, Jeff. I texted you this, and I haven't verified it, but I believe I was watching the Cleveland game yesterday. The announcer said that no game in the conference finals has been closer than double digits. They've all been, regardless of whichever team's won now, they've all been blowouts, which is yeah, astonishing. It doesn't make for uh, for nail-biting watching. It doesn't make for drama, but uh, I think the games have been exciting because of the big swings, because it's not like the same teams keep winning by the large margins. It's a big pendulum swings back and forth, but um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying these finals, uh, or these conference finals. Uh, it's the finals. The Western Conference is the finals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that, too. Um, uh, but yeah, also, man. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, from both of us... Um, hearts out to um all those affected in santa fe at, or that houston area santa fe high school indeed we start a lot of shows like this uh too many too many and uh it's you know close to home again for me not that that matters compared to what everybody's experiencing but also on a, a bright side jj watt continues to be a, a beacon of a human being it seems like um coming through for the community when they need him and uh, it's really Nice to see that positivity when um, tragedy continues to strike. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well said. It's always hard to talk uh, about a hobby that involves so much death and destruction in the world. It's it's nice when that hobby can be an escape into a fantasy where that doesn't where that happens because it doesn't happen in the real world very often. Um, but uh, it happens in the real world way too often, and it feels like we need to comment because my God. Um, but yes, you're right. Our hearts go out to uh, those people. I wish, um, I wish more than our hearts could be at play here. Anyway, um, we have a really interesting show for you. It's a little different show this week. Uh, we are very fortunate uh, to be able to bring um, some some in depth discussion of God of War to you. In fact, you know that the DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian. But this week. 
DLC stands for dad level crafting because we have two designers from a uh, lead level designers. In fact, from Sony Santa Monica studios, uh, the guys that, that are responsible for God of war. We're going to have Luis Sanchez and Rob Davis with us. They're not going to join us for the news section, the story of the week section, Uh, Just be Christian and myself for that. But they'll be with us for the rest of the show. We're going to dive deep into God of War, talk about what else is on their playlist. And, uh, and I think it's going to be one you want to, you'll want to hear, especially if you've played the game. We'll be not super spoily, but we're going to talk about the game freely. So, uh, hopefully you've played some God of War and you'll be excited to hear it, but it's, it, it, it's going to be great. So stick around for that. But in the meantime, this has been a massive, massive week of news. So Christian and I have a lot to cover for Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Stories- since we have no guest this week, I had to jump in. Jeff Kanata, as the lead host of this show, who works so tirelessly every week to get most of these stories, if not all of the stories prepared and ready to go, and Story of Week, of course, is the part of the show where we talk about, make a case for what we think is the most important story in video games that week. Jeff Kanata, as the man who puts so much work into it each week, you get first pick. What's your Whoa, story of the week? Oh, look at that. Well, you're doing that to me because there's so many good stories. Like there's, there's, <laughs> okay, I, take a few, take a few. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of, of good stories to talk about. I want to talk about the Rage 2 trailer as my story of the week. I know we, I think we talked, yeah, we talked last week because the Walmart uh, Canada snafu that kind of, you know, uh, outed Rage 2 as being a game that was in development meant that the Bethesda team uh, released that teaser and kind of confirmed, we're kind of being playful and coy about confirming that Rage 2 is happening. But in the last week, we got both a live action uh teaser trailer and then also a gameplay trailer as well as some interesting uh, tidbits of what the game is going to consist of Uh, evidently you will play as the last ranger walker and you're going after a bunch of gangs uh, as well as the authority and oppressive faction who took everything from walker and left him for dead and uh, you'll be using all kinds of elemental powers and you'll be on all kinds of vehicles and we know that this is being made in a joint venture between Bethesda Studios and Avalanche. Avalanche is the studio behind a game that I think is criminally underrated, the Mad Max game from a few years ago. I mentioned it a bunch of times on this show as being one that not enough people played. I think it is a flawed game, but man, it had so much going for it, so much fun stuff. I had a blast playing Mad Max, some of the best car combat I've ever played in a game. But you can see uh, why you would want a studio like Avalanche. It's literally made a Mad Max game just recently to work on a game that is basically Mad Max kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland. Christian, what did you think of the Rage 2 official gameplay trailer and uh, the information that we've discovered about this game? Yeah, I found the gameplay trailer to be pretty exciting. I found the live action trailer to, I guess, 90s nostalgia is in, but (laughs) but it felt very much like, extreme, what? Slap your mom. Here's a guy's tummy. We're going to punch it. Like, it just felt. I think the, I think the, the fact that it had a little personality was, was, was fun. I liked that about it. Yes. I I like that it had a little personality. I think it went a little farther than, but that's fine. It's me critiquing their art doesn't 
I understand why they went that took that approach. But I thought the gameplay trailer was really exciting in terms of how bombastic it was. Um, it looked beautiful. Um, the particle effects and and the dust and the smoke and then like whatever those color gas grenades are, you know, that's bringing in that pop pink and purple and those splashes into the game world. It looks like from some form of rocket launcher or something. And who knows what the enemy AI is going to be like, but the amount of characters shown on screen uh, and parts of that trailer, I thought were really impressive. And it's again, like you mentioned avalanche, uh, they've made some great games in the past. Bethesda and id, I think are firing on all cylinders with, in terms of bringing back these, franchises um of the past and i I, i'm excited for rage too i'm a little bummed that you know the the walmart leak is kind of maybe how it got announced because i feel like that trailer was set for an incredible e3 moment right because it doesn't say the name until the very end yeah and it has like all this stuff going on and you're like oh my god what is it and it's like rage too um but i thought it looked really exciting i have some questions like is it co-op uh, what is, is the vehicular combat? It says it has a lot of that stuff in it, but I'm curious to see that shown off. And then I'm curious to see um, what their tweak is on the open world. Like we have so many great open world games. Now we talk about God of War later, Horizon Zero Dawn, Breath of the Wild. Um, is this just another open world game? Or are they putting their own spin on it? couple things. Uh, first, if it's the case that Walmart forced their hand I think that's kind of lame. Like, yeah, I get it. I get it. But why not just continue to play coy and still do the reveal at E3? I, I don't think that it necessarily meant that they had to just go all out and tell us everything beforehand. But maybe, maybe they know something I don't about that. It would have been a really cool, as you said, a really cool moment. No one thinking that Rage was coming back and then that cool reveal. You know, you would have sat through that whole trailer going, what is this? Does, that kind of looks like rage. Um, <laughs> I think that would have been neat, but you know, oh well. Uh, the other thing is I liked the, uh, the splash of color, the, the pop of color, you know, with the pinks and the, the fuchsias and all that sort of neon look in, in, especially in the live action trailer. And it felt like there was very little of it in the gameplay trailer, although there was some. I, I hope there's more of that. I, I would love it to have more, as I said, personality, uh, you know, in throughout the entire game and not feel just like a Mad Maxian future. I, I would love for them to carve out a little bit more of a unique take on that. Um, I think that could be cool. But the other thing is it really isn't, you know, we talk about Bethesda and their sort of Beyonce drops, which I guess you could start calling them Bethesda drops, where they announce something at, at their press conference at E3 and then it comes out that same year. It sounds like that's not what's happening here. This is yeah. said it's coming out in 2019. So we don't even know what part of 2019, if it's early 2019 or what, but it's interesting that they're not doing that. It, it is uh, an announcement for a game that's a little farther off than, than, you know, what, what they did with fallout and doom. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, maybe it's early 2019. Maybe it's that January time slot. So this is still the best time to kind of announce it. Like yeah. what other big opportunities do you have to reveal a game like this? Uh, I mean, I guess you can make your own, but yeah, and I'm curious what else they're going to have at E3 now, because there have been rumors of them having more. But if this is 2019, does that imply that they're... Because if you think of games that Bethesda makes, you would think that they all take a long time to make, right? <laughs> like, So if they're announcing Rage for next year, how far out are the rest of their games? And maybe they've changed their approach. Maybe it's no longer the... Maybe, maybe Beyonce has her drop back, Jeff. Maybe. 
I'm, I'm glad she's finally allowed to have something because Beyonce <laughs> needs at least something. Um, yeah. All right. So what do you uh, what do you want to pick for your story of the week? Then we, we'll, we'll cover several more stories. But what do you think is the most important story of the week? Yeah. Uh, even if I were first, Rage Two would not have been my story. I think it's got to be Call of du- Call Call of Duty Call of Duty Black Ops Four, also known as the game given a subtitle for no reason, also known as the leaks were right. Also, they revealed, they started this big presentation that they called their multiplayer reveal. And I was like, oh, cool. They're calling this their multiplayer reveal. Okay. There's, there's a, there's a caveat there. It's just their multiplayer reveal. So and that means you, they're single player, right? Right. And then as you pointed out, uh, at the end, they're like, and so it doesn't have a story, but this mode is going to be great. Like they <laughs> threw it away. Yeah. No single player. Yes. Battle Royale. Uh, Three zombie maps, which is more zombie maps than you typically get at launch. And I think they've said a typical release of standard maps. Uh, and then story told kind of through some missions of these characters, these hero type characters. I guess you'll get a cutscene at the beginning and be like telling some form of story, but that reveal felt so disjointed. It's coming in October, which is soon. Um, you know, I know your face when you were watching it, and I heard your your live commentary, so I know it. But I want you to tell our <laughs> listeners, you know, your reaction to this storied franchise kind of taking a hard left turn, right? Yeah, you and I were in the same room as we watched this uh, this big hour long plus uh, reveal that Activision put on. So yeah, we we've definitely discussed it IRL, but um, it is it was an odd thing this presentation. Uh, like you said, it, it, so you have this game called Black Ops 4, and Black Ops is called Black Ops because the story is different than regular Call of Duty games, right? So that's the whole reason you would call something Black Ops. So when you remove the narrative out of it, and admittedly, they're not saying they remove the narrative, they're saying they put it into the multiplayer, as you mentioned, but it does feel like that's gonna be I'll buy that when I see it. <laughs> That's called a cutscene you skip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they made a whole big deal about zombie mode. Certainly zombie mode looks way cooler this time and has much more going on in it. Big, long zombie cutscenes they showed. Big, you know, setups for interesting, cool zombie things. Sword and uh, shield type combat, which looks kind of interesting in this kind of a game. But again, you're called the game Black Ops 4, and this is the first reveal of Black Ops 4. That There's nothing Black Ops about that. Kind of odd. And then the big build-up to, we're doing Battle Royale in a way only Black Ops can, and the only, only way only Call of Duty can. And then they don't show anything about it. It's literally they just black out the lights, and they come back, and, and that's it. I suspect that the full reveal of the... Uh, the uh, battle royale mode will be held for E3 or around E3. I suspect that's the case. Yeah. But maybe it's not done. Maybe this is a late addition. If the rumors that we reported on a couple of weeks ago are true that they pulled the single player because it wasn't done and they needed something else to replace it. And this is sort of this afterthought mode that they're sticking in at the end. I, I hope that's not the case. I hope that that's misreported, but I can buy it based on the fact that they didn't show anything about it. And they certainly talked a big game about it, including all of those things that you know from Call of Duty. But if you think of what Call of Duty multiplayer is, it's a very frenetic, constant action kind of experience. And when you think of a Battle Royale game, it's really not a constant action kind of experience. 
So I'm very curious if the, if people are going to embrace this in the way they think they will. Yeah, it has some. I mean, I think the the vehicles, their commitment to a, a wide array of vehicles could be interesting and could be its secret sauce. And that trailer they showed, you know, it looked like a ten story high rise building, which is certainly something that other battle royale games haven't like done yet in that way where. You know, you have these tight staircases or whatever, and you, maybe you get like a Raid Redemption or Dread 3D style moment fighting up this building. That could be really interesting. As far as I know, they have not um, confirmed the player count, which is interesting. I think yeah. when people think Battle Royale, they think 100, but it certainly doesn't have to be. And then this other, and I was just trying to Google it because, of course, I didn't prepare. Um, th- the other thing I found interesting about all of this is how Call of Duty would do Battle Royale in the term, in the sense of you look at Overwatch, which is the same parent company, uh, but not, not Battle Royale, but a multiplayer game that has now, what, its third year, third anniversary, it just celebrated, uh, or second, second or third. And then, um, it's this thing that keeps going. You buy it once and it keeps going. Fortnite, no money. It's, it's iterating upon itself. PUBG, one purchase, meant to live forever. And then an interview when they're trying to talk about air quote, losing its single player, there was a lot of push toward Call of Duty isn't necessarily no longer having single players just for this team in this game. We wanted to focus on something that only we could make, that only Treyarch could make, and that's this blackout mode. So to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that raises a little flag like, wait a minute. So this blackout mode is part of a $60 purchase that then isn't in next year's, like this is a, a 10 month long battle Royale mode. Like that's just not typically how this genre has worked. And I'm super curious how the $60 boxed copy battle Royale mode yeah. that maybe only lives a year because the next developer is making a different game that they're already one year into. Like, how does that change things for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a real interesting question. I, I'm not entirely convinced that, that this is going to work. I, I would love to see a battle royale that feels more frenetic and more Call of Duty like, right? But the whole idea of Call of Duty multiplayer is, I mean, I play it poorly, so I die very fast. I'm sure there's people that stick around a long time, but these type of multiplayer games typically, you don't, you're not, hanging around, you're running into the fray and getting a lot of kills and then being killed and respawning and, and doing it again. If you respawn into a new game every time, I don't know. I guess, I guess people play Fortnite that way. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the pace is the same pace that you get typically from Call of Duty multiplayer in this new mode. The other thing that I think is interesting is I don't think Fortnite's in any danger. Fortnite certainly uh, has owns the world right now. I mean, I've said this before, right? So I could be wrong again. But Fortnite owns the world right now. They feel different. It, it's got this cartoony aesthetic that I think is appealing. As you've repeated over and over, it's free, which is a huge benefit to a lot of people to play it. Um, but I do feel like this is direct competition for PUBG. And poor PUBG, man. I, I said before, oh, PUBG's fine. But you look at Fortnite eating its lunch. Now I feel like you've got something that is the quintessential I'm cool because I'm a military shooter game doing the same thing PUBG does. Does this eat PUBG's lunch? I think it will take some audience from PUBG and I think it will get some mainstream audience that, that PUBG, despite how big it is, it never got, you know, call of duty is that recess talk of the school kind of game where, where PUBG is, it's different, but I, I think PUBG is 
assuming they continue to iterate and build and refine, I think they'll be okay because obviously not knowing exactly how Blackout plays, but extrapolating based on Call of Duty games, the gun feel and the movement and the way you run around a map, it is different. And I do think there is room for more than just two Battle Royale games out there. So, you know, PUBG might fall a little bit, but I don't think they're in danger of the studio closing. I I do think that uh, PUBG studios, they, they do need to be concerned, though, and try to find ways to iterate faster if they want to remain competitive. Because while I don't think Call of Duty will will be the nail in the coffin, um, if they continue to kind of move at the pace they're moving, I, I, I do think someone is making that coffin right now. <laughs> it's just being shaped. Man, I never thought I would say I feel bad for Microsoft, but I kind of feel bad for Microsoft. I mean, how much money did they pony up to buy PUBG? And now it feels like, oh, you were really late in that purchase, fellas. <laughs> you were really late. No way to predict it, I don't think. I mean, oh. literally, you know, Fortnite's announcement letter is like, hey, we're fans of PUBG. Yeah. <laughs> we think we yeah. can do this. And they did, and they did it great. But also don't necessarily feel bad for Microsoft because they're still making whatever it is, 30% off of every V-Buck purchase in Fortnite on their console. That's true. I guess that's true. Um, and they got that Minecraft money too. Yeah, that game's still doing well. Um, I am I am curious what they're... The, what you need to feel bad for them is that Call of Duty is also on PC, now on Battle.net, yeah, and also on, on PlayStation. That's the Microsoft question mark. But Battle.net too, that was a fun reveal for this, where they were like, and now you can chat with all of your friends playing other games, like Overwatch. I mean, that's literally the only <laughs> <game>. <laughs> Yeah, And <laughs> World of Warcraft, I guess? And yeah. Hearthstone, when people are playing Hearthstone? <laughs> Finally, um, a community. Um, you know, not like that big community you had on Steam, you know. <laughs> The yeah. community. <laughs> uh, the other thing before we move on from this game, the other thing that I think was the big uh, differentiator of this Call of Duty is uh, active healing. You you don't no longer do you just hide in the corner and regenerate mm. your health. You have to hit yourself with a stim pack, which the imagery of which is 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 disturbing to me on a number of levels. That literally it's just a bunch of people shooting and sh- and then shooting up and then shooting more and shooting up. It just it, I don't know in this in this world that we live in that just. I don't know, it gets me. But setting that aside, what do you think of making active healing a a skill-based moment in multiplayer? Yeah, I think it's a creative way to look at the genre, right? I mean, we've lived in this world of ducking behind a crate. Like it evolved from picking up a health pack to ducking behind a thing and letting it regen. And now this is, they're taking a swing at a, at a new take on that where you're running and, and shooting yourself up. So you could constantly be moving and not needing to move out into a vulnerable space, right? Cause the health pack version, you were constantly moving there as well to go and get the thing. And that created choke points in the level. Um, and then the hiding, you try to turtle or find a spot on the map where you could hang out. And now with this, it seems like you just need, you know, a half second. Um, and so you can be stalking your, your, you know, the other team still as you're running and boosting yourself. Um, I don't think it will change the KD ratio for me personally, but I think it's interesting to see them like people give Call of Duty a hard time. It's sim game every year. And there's been a number of interest, interesting tweaks and iterations that I, I think people are unfair against the franchise about. So moving on, there's lots of other news this week, uh, including some notable delays of games. I mean, we're, we're heading into E3, and in fact, I should mention, if you love the uh, sultry sounds of Christian and I talking with no guests, boy, you're going to love our E3 coverage. <laughs> no, we'll have guests for E3 as well. But Don't we get the hype train bumper, though, so who cares what we say? We do. We do get the hype train bumper. In fact, I probably should have 
we probably should have been doing it already. I mean, we've been hyping up for E3 already, but um, we will be doing um, some some special shows as we do every year, talking about the the um, press conferences and stuff. So, well, we'll announce that as as we're coming up. But it's it's we're getting there, man. We're getting there. I've got a full schedule already for E3. It's going to be nuts. But there are some games that have. Uh, well, we've expected to be at E3 that look like they are not going to be there, or if they are, it's because they are not coming out anytime soon. Um, so this week we got notable delays of Metro Exodus with the big third Metro game uh, everybody expected coming this year. No. In fact, the reason we expected it is because they literally said they were coming out this year, but no. You can never rely on Metro showing up on time. You know, you think it's hey. okay, then the train gets, you know, it's just something's on the track. It's it's a whole thing. Well done. Uh, Q1 2019 for Metro Exodus now, although it will be at E3. And uh, we also got a delay for Shenmue 3. What? How, who could possibly <laughs> have predicted that? Even though the developers said... No way, no how. This this delay to the second half of 2018 is going to be definitely the last the last delay. You, oh wait, no, Ken, sorry, 2019 now. Uh, so that's happening with Shenmue three, and then uh, the game that has not been announced but has been <laughs> delayed. Uh, the quote highly anticipated title from one of 2K's biggest franchises, which had been planned for release during the current fiscal year, is now. Planned for launch during fiscal 2020. Bully. It's not bully. Uh, that is, I don't, is that 2K? That's Rockstar. Is it Rockstar? That's, that's 2K. Yeah, I guess that's the same thing. Uh, no, Borderlands 3, which everyone expected to be the big, or uh, one of the big surprise games at E3, not only is not going to be at E3, according to Gearbox, but is not going to be coming out uh, anytime soon. Fiscal 2020 means between April 2019 and March 2020. So Wait, probably fiscal 2020. Did I miss that? Fiscal 2020, baby. So we're talking fall of 2019 uh, is what I predict. Uh, it will be a fall game next year, not this year. Wow. Um, so tune in a year from now at E3 for that, I suppose. So what is your reaction? Uh, these are some notable notable games that we thought would at least make appearances uh, either this year or at E3 this year. And uh, other than Metro, these games are going to be no-shows. Yeah, Metro, I understand. Those games have always been um, technological masters, I think, right? Like they've had some performance issues, but they've, always, they've, they've pushed graphics in a big way um, with the past iterations. And I could see with this game getting some hype early on them wanting to take that time to really polish it i don't know the details about it at all but it doesn't seem like a big delay um other games that receive delays like this uh came out great and so i i, I get it i understand i'm sure no one was excited to to have to do that but i, I get it shenmue 3 that's not real <laughs> i mean, I mean the just, game at all isn't real <laughs> not not until i not until we can play it, right that's the type of game where if you gave money to it you know God bless you. I've thrown money into a wishing well before also. Oh, can I, can I tell you something that happened this week along those lines? You threw money in a wishing well? Well, I, two years ago, I, I, you know, I very rarely support Kickstarters because I get on this show and I'm like, Kickstarter is not a storefront. It's a investment and you're going to lose your money. I've, I have, you know, I can count on two hands the amount of Kickstarters I've actually supported. <sighs> I supported two years ago. I supported the OSIC 
X headset, the special 3D audio headset that was going to change the world as far as audio. <laughs> I just got an update. Have you heard about this? I just got an update this week saying, oh, guess what? We're not making those. Sorry, you lost all your money. What? Yeah. What well, changed the world? <laughs> they raised what, like two point seven million dollars, uh, wow. for ten from ten thousand um, uh, backers, and I think I I don't even want to remember how much I spent. It was probably over two hundred dollars to buy uh, one of the first ones. And nope, we're not. Sorry, we're not sending them to anybody. We're closing. We couldn't do it. Sorry. Even though they've been spending money going to trade shows for the last two years, and uh, yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I guess that's the better way. Like if it was going to close, right? The better way is to see that they were spending money and trying instead of like you raise all this money and then you don't hear anything from them. And then you just see the guy's Ferrari, right? Yeah. Like, I guess, but they were spending all the money not making the thing I wanted. Yeah. So I yeah. don't know. It's very frustrating. I didn't mean to sidetrack us into that, but that is throwing money into a wishing well. And I've learned a big lesson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it sucks. So next time you think about doing it, just here in 3D space around you going, nah, dog, yeah, yeah. don't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So Shamu, I mean, I've, I've liked the franchise. We've spoken at length about it, how neither one of us think it necessarily is the franchise we need today. And rose colored glasses maybe painted a better, better picture than it is. But that's really until that game comes out. It's like the last guardian that game came out. I didn't think it was going to come out until I could buy it. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, we'll just wait. And then, um, the game that has a symbol that looks like Prince's because it doesn't have a game name yet or, uh, the game formerly known as a game we yeah. announced <laughs> or Macbeth. You can say Macbeth, but you can't say Borderlands three <laughs> at a video game store. Right. Um, that's, just, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a talented team. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with them. Hopefully everything comes together. I hope it's not another alien situation maybe that's what they're trying to eliminate right they don't want to show something that they can't deliver on dude this is the way to do it i'm i am a big fan of this i mean they haven't officially announced the game we don't know anything about it we don't know what it looks like we don't know what it plays like wait yeah and yeah there's a lot of people are like borderlands 3 is going to be at e3 no they put this out and they're like no it's not it's not coming don't get excited don't don't even dangle it out there just like be very clear no Whatever game you think we're making, it's not coming. I think this is perfect. Uh, it's yeah. disappointing, but yeah, if the game needs to cook a little longer, cook it a little longer. Don't tell us about it. Don't show us the trailer and then go, no, it's not going to be another. Wait, and then be able to show it when it's ready. I, I'm total. I think this is exactly what you would want, and it 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 doesn't raise alarms for me. I think it may, hopefully it is indicating that they're really being smart about it. Yeah, I mean, people were asking the same question about what Sony Santa Monica was working on for years. Yeah, right? when, when's God of War going to announce? Be announced? We know that they're going to make another God of War. When are they going to announce it? Yeah, yeah, and then same thing with um, Sucker Punch. Oh, when's the next Infamous coming out? Well, right. this, and then they they when they were ready to show their game, it looks awesome, and hopefully it will be. So, you know, fingers crossed. Here we go. Yeah. Um, the next thing that I would like to talk about, if we, if I may, Jeff, yes, it was please. announced today and maybe more information has come up since I last looked at it. But remember that game we both really liked? It was a horror game. We played it in VR. Neither one of us were able to finish it, but we both thought it was an incredible game. It's a game called Resident Evil 7. Yeah, I just didn't have enough pants. What if I told you that game <laughs> is coming to the Nintendo Switch? Okay. But wait, there's more. I don't need it on i mean it doesn't seem like the game that i want to play on so, okay go ahead go ahead there's more but, but what if i told you 
that when I mean the game, it's just not the game. It's just your your it's a cloud version what? of the game. What does the cloud version of the game mean? It, it so it looks like you you pay about twenty bucks and you have access to it for hundred and eighty days. Okay. And what if I told you that I think your save also lives on that cloud? And so when it goes away, it's all gone. So you know that portable system you can take anywhere with you. What if I told you? Yeah, I was going to give you one of the best version, or one of the best games in a long storied franchise that you can't play anywhere. So you're telling me that this uh, console that uh, is online anywhere I want it because it definitely has its own uh, its own LTE account and uh, <laughs> it's got its own uh, w- wireless service that I can. Uh, that's, that's why you would make a game that requires an online connection in order to play it, right? Because I can definitely get online. I don't need Wi-Fi to use my Switch, right? Right. That's exactly right. You know, it's the, from, on the console that gives you the best, most robust online experience. <laughs> right. So this is all coming out today. It, it is, as we're recording this on Sunday, Resident Evil 7 Switch cloud version. That's, of course, that's Capcom's words. The rumors are it's, it's the- so Capcom. So Capcom to call it that, by the way. The rumor is they're trying to get Monster Hunter World on it. It's announced for the Jap- Japanese. It has a uh, Western announcement is expected soon. Um, and so I feel like, Jeff, this is the moment where if the Warriors win this, this conference final, when, I won't feel too bad. When the because, Warriors win. Sure, whatever. Um, you know, the, the children at St. Jude are getting getting more money, which is great. From um, you. But, <laughs> this, but to be to be fair... Also from you. Yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> um, but me because but, I want to. You because you lost a bet. <laughs> right. It'd be it'd be more money. Well, this one will come from my wife. Uh, she hasn't donated yet. Um, this I feel like is the moment where you get to walk over to me and kick me in the private and be like, "You're the one that said you wanted streaming. You said you wanted Netflix of games. Yeah, here it is." And I feel like I'm. What what's the classic? Not like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's odd. It's odd. I mean, I guess we could take them separately and say Resident Evil 7 on the Switch. Okay, cool. Anything on the Switch is cool, right? Anything, put it at all on the Switch. Why not? But this way of doing it seems an odd proof of concept uh, that uh, I don't know. You, I don't know. I don't get it. My, yeah. You know what's weird about my Switch? Does yours have this issue? We've literally never talked about this, and I – Think about it every time, and I always tell myself to bring it up to you, and I never do. Let's do it. Whenever I get a new Switch game to download, uh, I can't download it anywhere in my house, even when it shows me I have a great Wi-Fi connection. I have to walk close to my router in order to download a game. Does that happen to you? I don't know about that specifically, but I will say this: my Switch's Wi-Fi is atrocious, and this past weekend... I tried to play Splatoon 2 uh, with my daughters and we kept having issues and I know it wasn't our, our Wi-Fi. Yes, it, it is, I think, well known that uh, that it is a, uh, a bad, a, not the best Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's make a cloud version of games then. That's good. Smart. Yeah. I, and again, like part of me is like, okay, because I'll rent movies on Netflix. I know a game's different than a movie. I think the price point is odd. I'm curious what the performance is like. And, and also... I think the Switch could run Resident Evil 7, but if I'm getting like the best graphical version of this, you know, like if it looks like PC on Mac settings, and I guess that's cool, but it seems, it seems weird. And I don't know. It seems, it seems really weird to me. Yeah. 
Well, we got more news I want to hit, uh, but first let me thank uh, our first sponsor, which is Mac Weldon. Uh, Christian, I, you and I just uh, dipped back into the Mac Weldon. In fact, I, I have. Well, I'm going to show the stream. I'm wearing. Him. I'm going to stand up. Oh, nice. Yeah. That in camera. Yeah. Did you just show your underpants to everybody? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, a few people, the lucky ones. Well, Mac Weldon is uh, your place for basics. Uh, I'm actually wearing my Mac Weldons today as well. The reason I'm wearing my Mac Weldons today is because I went, um, I went to a, uh, a festival. I went to the Strawberry Festival today. And uh, when I'm walking around, when I'm being active, when I'm out all, all day, I want to wear my Mac Weldon underpants, my boxers, because I find them to be the most comfortable. Uh, they're the most stylish, but they're also antimicrobial and they don't stink. The, these are the ones that hold up under the most uh, rigorous <laughs> wear and tear, which is nice. But they're super comfy. They're high, very high quality. But the thing about Mack Weldon is they're not just, you know, undergarments. They have really great undershirts, boxers. Uh, Christian, you do the boxer briefs, as you said. Uh, they trunks. Have, it's trunks. It's okay. Trunks? That's they call them? Trunks? Yeah. Um. I'm not hip enough to wear trunks. Uh, <laughs> in your trunk. Right. Yeah. Um, but they also, now I just got a polo shirt from Mack Weldon. It's really high quality. This is like nice stuff. And I also got some shorts, some like board shorts uh, that are really slick too. You mean some Beat Saber shorts? Yeah, that's really what it is. It's for me playing Beat Saber. And <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. Uh, and Mack Weldon, these, they believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. And simple shopping is the truth, man. You get on their website. It's so easy. You just, you click through. They don't have, they don't drown you in a million products. You just get the things you need. You don't have to go into a store and buy underwear. Like who wants to do that? I don't. And usually if I do do that, I said do do, but if I do do that, I, We'll end up getting uh, crappy stuff because I don't want to spend any time worrying about it. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to a store. I got a million things to do. I just grab a bag of 15 of a thing and they end up being scratchy and uncomfortable. Do it on Mack Weldon. It's get on the website. It's easy. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial. As I said, super comfortable. It's great. So what you want to do is go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off by using promo code DLC. It's just easy. It's just a regular website and you just use the promo code. So MacWeldon.com, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Use the promo code DLC and you get yourself 20% off, which is great. You'll feel better. You'll smell better. It'll be great. All right, Christian, back to the news. Let's talk a little bit about uh, No Man's Sky because we talked about this No Man's Sky Next, which is what they're calling their, their big up expansion. We found out this week well, one of the big new features it will include is full multiplayer, full co-op. You can do stuff in the game that they said you would never be able to do, which is... No, they said you could do it. That's the problem. <laughs> well, they said it would be very hard. Uh, now they want to make it easy. It is a full-on mode. Um, uh, Sean Murray said, uh, this is very different. It's more Battlestar. It's like Star Trek away team. It's fun. It's funny. It's emergent and it's kind of intense. So you can team up with your friends. You can team up with randoms. You can go around killing other players. Uh, interesting stuff. This might be the version of no man's sky 
that I wanted originally. This may the game fi- may finally be this amazing game that we all wanted. What do you think? It's also coming out. Uh, this is a free update that is coming out on PC and PlayStation 4 day and date with the Xbox One version, which will also include these features. Uh, and that will be uh, oh, I guess they don't have a date, but it will be um, on the day and date with with Xbox One. So. What do you think about this? Is is this enough for you to return to No Man's Sky? Maybe with me? <laughs> I thought you were willing to come to my penis rock planet. Um, <laughs> uh, it sounds like it's down in penis the, rock. <laughs> <laughs> they're talking about space of thieves, right? Like it's, it's kind of. Yeah. I feel like they're selling this, but but with a ton more content than Sea of Thieves. Yeah. Um. I think this sounds like a great update. This is where I will just be brutally honest with our listeners and myself, I don't think they can do anything to pull me back into that game. Just the way I play games and have moved on from it. Like, I don't know if they were like, and (laughs) actually the next story beat from God of War is in no man's sky. I'd be like, I've played that game. (laughs) You're never get a second chance to make a first impression guy. Yeah. Or or maybe you you get two chances to make two impressions. And then, Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I I was really high on the game when it came out. I was really excited about it. Impression me once, shame on you. <laughs> Impression me twice, shame and on I, me. I, and I hope it's good. I I hope it's good. Um, the team, what they have done with that game over the years, I think has been pretty incredible. I think they're a victim of uh, the game's own hype. But to be a hundred percent truthful, I I honestly doubt there's any chance I even unless it does it automatically on my console. I doubt I even impl- install the update. It, Unless, I mean, unless you tell me like I have to and it's the best thing ever and I can tell that it really is and that you're not just excited about it and then you won't play it again after I do it because you'll be like, I'm I'm doing something else now. (laughs) I'm excited to check it out. I I never uninstalled No Man's Sky from my PlayStation 4 on the off chance that I would want to go back to it, uh, which almost never is the case. But this seems like it's actually going to be the case. I'm going to check this out. I'm going to check this out. I'm going to see. And this is only one, by the way. This is only one of the new features of this big update. So maybe there'll be other cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I always liked this game. So yeah. why not? Why not? I hope so. I hope it's great. And I hope that team gets a you know big boost from, from the Xbox one version of it. Um, and it seems like gamers, you know, they really rallied around sea of thieves. A lot of people were playing that. Yeah. So maybe that's the right audience for this game. Are those, uh, are those gamers? I mean, emergent, silly gameplay that you hear about with, with uh, sea of thieves all the time mixed with, infinite weird creatures to discover and crazy planets to, you know, caves to delve into all. I mean, Sea of Thieves is great, but there's, it's, you know, it's not got a ton of content. This is literally infinite content on a, 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 you know, from a certain perspective. I think that could be really fun. Yeah. I I hope, I hope you're right. I hope you love it. And I hope the Xbox one people check it out. Yeah. Uh, well, last thing I want to bring up, just because I think it's such a cool thing, uh, we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but uh, Microsoft uh, announced this week that they're doing an adaptive controller, which is a pretty cool initiative. The fact this is a mainstream thing, I think, should be applauded, and I wanted to make time for it on the show. This is a a $100 controller that will go on sale later this year that plugs into your Xbox One or your PC and is basically made to allow other controllers and peripherals to interface with those systems easily and create ways for um, various people who need uh, to control games in non-traditional ways to be able to control games. So 
you know, people with uh, physical disabilities or uh, other kinds of uh, use cases where they're not able to use the, the traditional controllers have struggled in the past to find ways to use various specialty controllers to, to play their games. Microsoft is now making it easy, and I think this is awesome. Um, they made a big deal about it, put out a big press release. It got covered by a lot of places. I love the fact that they're doing this, and it's front and center. Very cool, right? Yeah, and there was an interview that where they gave too that like this isn't an us versus them. This is an Xbox, Sony, you know, versus Sony or micro or Nintendo type thing. This is we want to sh- share that we'll share this technology with others. We want more people to play, and I, I really like that approach. It's kind of putting money where their mouth is, and it's not only on Xbox, <laughs> you know, like it's not that type of ad campaign. It's inclusive and in trying to get more people playing games and. I've talked about it on the show. Um, you know, like the work I've done with St. Jude and other children's hospitals, um, locally and, and across the country, being able to see kids play games, um, it's incredible and, and, and more people should be able to do it. And it is awesome that Microsoft is, is doing this and introducing it in a, a well made, it appears controller, not just some slap together thing. And I think it should have happened long ago. And I'm glad it's finally happening now. But this is, uh, you know, this is something that should have been easy for anybody to play a game, regardless of your, your needs. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad this is happening. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about the games we've been playing in the playlist. Christian, I know that you have been playing a lot of God of War, and we will be talking at length about that when Rob and Luis get here shortly. But is there anything else on your playlist you want to bring up? Honestly, it's been mostly God of War and then um, Far Cry 5. Um, I have a little difficulty talking about Far Cry 5 just because of real life things that have happened this week. But if I may, Jeff, I do have a question for you that I've thought about as I've gone back to it. And I don't, I'm not trying to surprise this on you. I just, something I've thought about the game. And we talked about last week about going back to, I think you mentioned Far Cry, but there's all these other games you want to try. And there was a conversation we had about um, playing games for work versus for fun. And like, what can you bring to the audience and stuff like that? Yeah. That was during our quick question segment last week. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've, I've gone back to Far Cry and been playing it with more ease than after recently. Um, I, I'm curious and curious to our listeners and to you, to what extent is it valuable to our audience to talk about the back half of a game? Like, do you feel like maybe that would be valuable if that game maintained its momentum over 40 hours um, versus that first? And I'm saying you, I know you've played a lot of it, so it's not like your impressions weren't valid or you weren't able to give them when you played it. Right. Um, and I talked about God of War at length when we had Andre on before I had finished that game and I felt like I was out of place to be able to talk about it constructively but i'm curious what your take is on that like is going back to the game is that going to provide value to people or are you just kind of sick of it and moving on and that's kind of the the reasoning the justification you give yeah i think i think it's not any one of those things i think all of those things are true right i think um the games i think it's telling the games that stick to me or you or our guests or whomever, right? I think that hopefully that's valuable when I say that, oh yeah, I finished God of War and I'm still playing it. Uh, I think that is uh, telling. I think when you say, oh yeah, I finished Horizon Zero Dawn and I can't wait to talk about the ending or whatever, I think that is telling. Um, 
there are games that I would finish in a vacuum, you know, that I don't. So I think that's also true. So it's not always revealing that uh, I didn't finish a game if I it just got pulled away to other things and felt like, oh, the show needs more right. new instead of rehashing the same game week after week. But I would love for people to tell us DLC feedback at gmail.com is the way to do that. Or by visiting the subreddit at uh five by five DLC.com. I would love people to, to tell us whether they are more interested in us talking about games we're playing over a longer protracted period of time. You know, if, if it is interesting to, you know, have two months go by and still be talking about uh, a game that we talked about two months ago, or if it's more interesting to pick up these smaller games like I have been doing or, or whatever, you know, if it's mm-hmm. variety is more interesting than uh, deeper dives. And I, and I hoping over the lifespan of this show, we've done a lot of both. I mean, we do deep right. dives on stuff and we do uh, quick takes on things and it's sort of a catch as catch can, but maybe there needs to be more structure. Maybe it's more useful for the listeners to have more structure there. Um, but yeah, I, I think Far Cry isn't a game that has beckoned me back. I think a lot of that is the God of War effect. Uh, I think I've had a bit of a hangover from God of War in the sense that it is so much better than most of the games I've played recently that it feels weird going back to games that feel a little bit stuck in the past. Hmm. Um, but I also, you know, I'm, I'm in the cult of the new also. Yeah. I, I love that new shiny thing. And this seems like every week there's new shiny thing. And I also want to give, you know, I want to give spot the spotlight, uh, however spotlight we have on this show. I want to give it to as many games as I can. And I think it's exciting when I talk about something new and interesting, but I will yeah. say, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say the only thing I have for our listeners, I have Hyrule warriors definitive edition coming, uh, via game flight. It's not here yet, but I will be spending, I spent time with the 3DS version of it before. So I know my way around the game as we all do. Cause we've all played that game before. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited you just to uh, smack as many things as you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'll have impressions of that next week. Awesome. Um, I will say though, in a, in a shocking twist uh, on this topic, uh, I did something I never do this week which is I played a backwards compatible game. Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, our friend and friend of the show, he was just on recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, David Ellis from uh, um, uh, 343. 343. I wanted to say 308. I don't know why I wanted to say that. 343 Studios um, had tweeted that he was enjoying Darksiders on Xbox One X with the Xbox One X enhancements. And I was like, oh my God. I would love to see that. I would love to see what it looks like on the Xbox One X. And I, I have it. I had it, you know, my Xbox 360 disc. And the, oh, that the, implementation is so good. It's, it's so, so good, good, dude. You just literally put the disc in and, and it works. I mean, it takes a second. It has to download a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't take long. And it's amazing. I, the first time I tried it, uh, I guess there are about a dozen Xbox One X enhanced games now. Okay. And all of them I have. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm like, oh, I have all of these. I'm eventually going to try all of them. But I popped in Darksiders. What it does is it kind of boots into like a fake Xbox 360. Like it convinces the game that it's being played on a 360. So you even get the 360 logo and it it pulls up like a uh, a version of the blade thing. Okay, to Blades or no blades? Yeah, it's got a, like faux blades to uh, to, you know, start your save game on but it does it in the cloud so it's like cl- it, it can, tells the game that it's on your hard drive but it's actually in the cloud it's very slick 
Um, and then popped into Darksiders, and I was like, I could, I could play through this entire game. This is a very good game, and you know, it's not going to trick anybody into thinking that it's you know, God of War or uh, whatever beautiful new game you're playing right now. I mean, God of War is gorgeous, and there's a lot of very beautiful games right now. No one's going to be fooled into thinking it's one of you know it's on that level, but it if you told me it was a new game, I would believe it. It looks really good. It looks really good. Um, it is in 4K. It is super crisp and bright and vibrant. It's got a very high frame rate on the Xbox One X, and it, I mean, it, it's an awesome game. It is you know I love Darksiders. The first Darksiders is basically Zelda. I'm reminded how awful the game starts. Like the, <laughs> the first, I don't know, 20 minutes to an hour of that game, it's a completely different kind of game. And you're like, oh, this is a crappy, like, Devil May Cry ripoff. It's yeah, like, like a bad God of War 2. Yeah, yeah. But it's not that – and then at a certain point it goes, oh, wait, you're not, we're not that game. We're Zelda, but with this cool sort of, you know, dark <laughs> R-rated uh, uh, skin. And man, it's a great game and it looks awesome. And I feel like if you just told me this would just came out, I would believe you. Uh, so man, I, so you're saying it's Zelda with like a dark side or. Yes. Something. Dark side. It's like the dark side or Zelda. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was like, boy, as much of the cult of the new as I am certainly in. I could probably go back and replay all these games that are coming out Xbox One X enhanced and barely remember them. <laughs> you know, like the moment to moment of, of each individual level, it, it was like, oh yeah, I, I remember this. But as I'm doing it, I don't remember how I solved the puzzles and stuff. You know, it's like I'm playing it for the first time again. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's basically the exact opposite of everything I said last week. So I hear, I hear Red Dead is also fantastic as a non X owner. I've heard that the Red Dead X updates I, are also available. I'm trying that real soon. I'm trying that because, uh, I'm very encouraged by how, how good this, and there's like, there's a bunch of, you know, the, some Gears of Wars, some Halos, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bunch of really cool games in there that they're updating like this. And I, as many games as I already own, it's like, well, you know, in, in the real world, I don't ever have to buy another game because <laughs> I could probably just play these. This is a totally unsubstantiated rumor that I should have mentioned earlier, but I don't think we talked about, but as you bring up these old games, have you heard like that rumor that gold is going away and it's all going to roll into Game Pass and that's the big push is all this other stuff? I'm just throwing it. I have not even like reliable sources have ter- told me this. Like just unreliable. I mean, Xbox sources. Live Gold is is just going to be you get it's yeah. Game Pass and you don't need gold for multiplayer. And the big push now no. is just play the games, not we're limiting you on how you can play them. That could be um, a huge E3 announcement. That would be that would be a real crowd pleaser. I'll tell you. It's interesting because they're doing great work with these, you know, backwards compatibility and updating them in in but phenomenal it, they ways. They need games that are new. I know they need new games. I know. Uh, speaking of new games, uh, also on my playlist this week, it, it was uh, pre E3 week here in Los Angeles. If you're not familiar with that, some people call it Judges Week, but it's not really Judges Week anymore. I mean, it kind of is. Um, I am not an E3 judge, but I was all up in pre-E3 week. Uh, so I played a bunch of stuff. Most of the stuff I played I can't talk about yet, but I can talk about... God of War 2. 
<laughs> I can't talk about Darksiders. Have you heard about this game? It's brand new. <laughs> I can talk about uh, Dreams, which Ooh. I got actual hands-on with at Sony's pre-E3 event alongside a bunch of other things I'm not allowed to talk about yet. But um, Christian, Dreams is kind of gobsmacking. It's it's if you make those other games you can't talk about in yes, dreams. Yes, I made Darksiders. It's crazy. I can't tell you about Spider Man, but let me tell you about this yeah. game I made in Dreams. You could make Spider Man. That it, it I've is, heard it's incredible. So it walk incredible. me through what they showed you, vertical slice or whatever, like what you played. Like for I've, people that yeah. don't know and haven't seen as much as even I've seen, what is it? Well, Media Molecule is the developer, and they, of course, are famous for Little Big Planet. If you never played Little Big Planet, it was basically a platformer where it gave you the tools to make more levels in the game. So you were kind of uncovering bits and bobs uh, of of pieces that you could use to create a level editor uh, in the game. And it would, had a lot of freedom in creating amazing stuff. A lot of people did some really remarkable things. But basically what you were making were more platforming levels. They have taken that core concept of making stuff in the game and exploded it beyond just making platformers. You you can make anything, any video game you can imagine. How? Not even just, not even just video game. You can How? make you can make animation. You can make a movie. You can make music. You can make sound effects. You can you can make anything in this game, and it is nuts. Okay. How generally speaking, how 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 can you do that? Unless it's like Unity, <laughs> it's like you no, boot up the game and it's just a spreadsheet. That's what I said. I said you guys aren't making a video game; you're making a Unity competitor. This is this is a platform, hmm. uh, and I think I'm never going to make a full video game out of it. But I think a bunch of people are. And I asked him, you know, are you going to make it so that you're able to boot directly into someone's game instead of having to go into Dreams first and find it? And they're like, we're kind of working on that. So they may be able to, you may be able to at some point publish a game that you download on your PlayStation 4 and people just boot into it and they don't ever have to access dreams directly and it just feels like you're playing Christian Spicer's game. Uh, wild. Which is pretty wild. And I think the next level of this, which would be really brilliant, is, I was talking to somebody else about this, is build whatever kernel that dreams needs in order to do it into the base operating system of the PlayStation 4. So you don't even need to download Dreams or own Dreams. You can just sell these off and you basically create an infinite indie game machine for the PlayStation brand. Like huh. you just have the ability to launch Dreams games so it, as part of the operating system. I, anyway, that's not part of what they showed, obviously, but that's my idea. I think. That how do I make it? Like I, I, Again, I'm very not talented. How how what game did you make or how do you how do you do this like what okay. are the, the mechanisms uh of or what are those t- tools how are how are you doing this? well it's not an easy answer because there's a lot of them uh first of all the game ships with a full campaign mode just like little big planet did and i guess the full campaign mode is going to be pretty big and robust and it, it looks cool i played a few game uh, levels from it and every single thing in the campaign mode was made using the tools in dreams. Like they didn't cheat none of it. Little big planet, not the case. Little big planet. They built the game, you know, the levels for the game. And then they added tools with dreams. Literally everything you play in the game was made with dreams. So that's pretty stunning. 
how you do it. Okay, so the first thing that you have to wrap your head around, uh, which I think is going to be the hardest one for most people to, to come to terms with, because it was the hardest one for me to come to terms with, is the fact that you basically have a cursor on screen like a mouse cursor, and you control it using the gyroscope. So a lot of people will recoil at that, I think, because you probably have had a lot of experience with bad gyroscope controls in games, but (laughs) you have a a cursor and you imagine, you know, holding your uh, dual shock controller and rotating your hands like you do. And it, it, you, you have a little cursor that you move around the screen. So that frees up the thumbsticks to do lots of other kinds of things. So you're not having to control your on-screen cursor with your thumbsticks because you're controlling it with the gyroscope. Okay. And then you are using the triggers to grab things, you know, like Little Big Planet, where you had the character's hands you grabbed. You're using this cursor to grab things and move things and shift things around. Uh, but there's all kinds of other controls. I mean, so many that I would need an hour to tell you about all of them. But there are different modules and different ways to uh, create things in the game. And there's a full sculptor to create models. Is it intuitive? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is very intuitive, actually. Um, you're just, you know, grabbing things and moving them around and copying things and building stuff. And, you know, like you'll get into a, the cool thing too is you can start with a level and then you get into what they call remix mode. So you can just mess with the level instead of starting from scratch, which is actually a much easier way to understand and grok everything. It also comes with a series of tutorials, a lot of them. And they're not tutorials where like a voice comes on a thing and says, okay, now we're going to learn about the sculpting tool. No, instead, you're actually playing something and building something, and as you're doing it, you're learning. So they're putting a lot of energy and emphasis on making the tutorials actually gameplay, which is smart, I think. That is really smart, yeah. Um, and so you can, like, you, you know, you can take a tree and move it around and stick it on a piece of ground and then yank up the ground with the tree and then enlarge that and duplicate it 40 times into so this weird kaleidoscope tree ground thing that doesn't look like a tree ground thing. Now it looks like a background, like a kind of a (laughs) mountain range. And oh, let's just use that as the mountain range in the background. So now it looks like the background of a level. And oh my God, that actually looks really, really good. But you know what would be better is if we change the lighting. So let's change it to nighttime. Okay, just shift the sun into a different spot. And you can place lights in the world. And oh, you know what actually would be cool? Wouldn't this be better if it actually looked like a 16-bit game? Okay, pull up this button, press X. And now it looks like a 16-bit game. Or do you want to make it look like a 16-bit game played on a CRT monitor? Okay, sure. Just warp the screen slightly. And now it looks like it's a, um, it's it's freaking insane, dude. It's insane. And do you want to create animation systems and logic? Sure, you can create animation systems and logic for literally anything in the game. Do you want to create... Um, a moving platform that plays music when you step on it? Sure. Oh, do you want to compose original score for this? Yeah, there's an entire music composition suite in the game where you literally create visual music by placing all these instruments in Oh, there are not enough instruments in the game? You want to create your own instruments? Okay, there's a visual a sort of gamified thing where you can invent an instrument by mixing <laughs> sounds together. Oh, is is animating individual parts of uh, a creature too time-consuming and tedious? Okay, well, let's just map the different parts to the controller and animate it like a marionette. 
So you literally are puppeteering an animation system and recording that. Oh, did the recording not go smoothly enough because your hand was kind of herky-jerky on the gyroscope controls? No problem. Just use this and you'll smooth out all the animations and it'll make it look good for you. It's insane, Christian. It's insane. I, huh. I, I like it was almost too much. I was like, I can't, <laughs> I can't. Every new thing he was like, oh, did you want to do that? Okay, well, let's go over here and do that. And then he would pull up a menu and it would have like 500 things on it. It would be like, okay, what about, do you want to add a character? Okay, let's just go to this character node over here and pull up. And there's like 400 of them. And like, oh, these are just the ones that we made. But you can make your own. And also everyone who plays the game will make their own. And they'll be populated infinitely. It's like, I I can't. You could spend all day just searching for the right tree. Or make your own tree from scratch because you sculpted it out of nothing. It's it's insane. It's insane. I'm excited for the Twitch streams and then hopefully the eventual games, other people's labor that I, that I will get to enjoy. Yeah, but also I think you know the, the, the game will ship with a bunch of of levels in a campaign, and the campaign works like Little Big Planet, where you're like unlocking yeah. new items to add to your collection and stuff. And and That's awesome. I, and I'm telling you, the the levels that I played. I played a a 3D platformer, a 2D platformer, a space combat game, uh, an abstract sort of mind-bending, like, trip down someone's throat. Uh, I played a, a sports game. I played um, – it, it's like anything. It could be – I watched a, a series of short films. Okay, um, I'm going to make the Tearaway sequel. There you go. There you go. Yeah, they aren't. (laughs) That's awesome. Anyway. All right. Well, let's bring in our guests now. But first, I want to thank our second sponsor, Squarespace. Speaking of making anything, if you want to make anything on the web, you need tools as easy as what I'm describing with Dreams. Squarespace has been doing that for nigh on a decade now. Things you can do with Squarespace. You can turn your cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can blog or publish content of your own, sell products and services of all kinds. You can promote your physical or online business. You can announce an upcoming event or special project, and there's so much more. Chances are you're going to need an online presence. The way to do that is with Squarespace. They make it so easy. It's just like what I've been talking about. It's all drag and drop. What you see is what you get. You're building a website by being on a website. That's the way to do it. No coding experience required. You start with beautiful templates created by world-class engineers. You get powerful e-commerce functionality that's just drag and drop. You can sell anything. You can customize the look and feel, the settings, the products. Just a few clicks get you all of that functionality. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. It's really everything you need. You've got analytics. You've got built-in SEO. You've got free and secure hosting. There's no patches or upgrades ever. It's all handled on the back end. 24-7 award-winning customer support. I've been using Squarespace forever. I mean, really, since I, since I started in this crazy business of show. <laughs> I have been using Squarespace, and I recommend you use it as well. Make it yourself, easily create a website by yourself, and then make it stand out. Stand out with a beautiful website. And you can go check out squarespace.com slash Jeff sent me. That's all one word, squarespace.com slash J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E. You get a free trial when you're ready to launch. Use the offer code Jeff sent me at checkout. Save yourself 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
Again, squarespace.com slash Jeff sent me and the promo code Jeff sent me will get you 10% off. All right, we are joined now by Rob Davis and Luis Sanchez, both lead level designers at Sony Santa Monica Studio. The studio, of course, responsible for God of War. Welcome, guys. Good day. Hi. Um, I have notably gotten into some interesting uh, internet fun, uh, falling over myself, praising your game. But suffice it to say, <laughs> I love your game, uh, and I'm so excited. Christian and I both have now finished God of War, and uh, we're so excited to talk about the game with you and, and have you here to talk about it. And really to talk about, well, let's first start with your stories. Uh, Rob, let's start hold with on, you. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, we're going to talk freely about the game. Yes. I'm not trying to straight up spoil any ending, but we're going to talk freely about the game. So if you haven't played the game or you don't want to know anything about the game, because I think we talk about design, we're going to get into stuff. So fair yeah, warning. We won't, we won't spoil anything without telling you that we're about to say a spoiler for, for like story content, but we will talk about places you go and things you see and stuff. So yes, if you have not played God of War and you want to be completely uh, spoiler free, then you probably want to wait and listen to this later. Thank you, Christian, for saying that. But let's start, Rob, uh, with a little bit about just you personally and uh, how long you've been at Sony Santa Monica and how you got there. Oh, sure. Um, well, I've been here about six or seven years. Uh, the project's been going for a while. Um, we started the project uh, probably about 2014, I think it was, and then we've been working on it for ages. And so it's been we've been so in the dark, wondering how everyone's going to you know, receive it and everything. It's been really fabulous over the last, you know, couple of weeks or last month, hearing everyone's response. Because um, a lot of us have, have been working here for quite a while. It's a pretty tenured design crew, I'd say, uh, at Sony Santa Monica overall. A lot of people have been making games for a long time. A lot of people have been at the studio for quite a while. So, yeah, and, and Luis, yeah. you've been there even longer than Rob, is that correct? Yeah, correct. So I joined the team uh, during God of War 3 back in 2009, so I've been here for a while. I'm kind of like the uh, elder statesman around here. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Are, are you bald with a beard? Because that's how I picture uh, <laughs> elder statesmen on God of War now. Only when I do Kratos God uh, cosplay. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> so th- the game was uh, in development, uh, what, about five years? Uh, that's that's a pretty long time for any game these days uh, to be in development. Certainly one as high profile as God of War. Can you guys talk a little bit about how this project started and what what the initial idea was. Was it always going to be as different from the old God of Wars as it as it turned out to be, or did it evolve? I think it was both. It it always set out to be different from the other ones. And during the course of the years, it definitely also evolved. So um, yeah, I mean, I would say like from pretty much the start, Corey had three pillars, which were combat, exploration, and narrative, and pretty much stuck to those, you know, through the whole project. It was really cool because for designers, you kind of need those pillars and those major areas of focus to, you know, create and craft your designs around. We do a lot in this game. It's much bigger than any other God of War game, but at the same time, you know, we don't do everything, right? We mm-hmm. took on a lot this time, but at the same time, we try to focus in on those three areas as much as possible because that's what we're trying to make special and, you know, very high quality and very unique. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to echo that, like, we had those three pillars, and it's kind of remarkable that it didn't change throughout the entire uh, project, which was combat, exploration, and narrative. And we knew we had to deliver on all three of those. 
And it's extraordinary how much you do and, and how fresh it feels. I'm struck uh, talking about level design by how much the game, I mean, it clearly is an open world game, but it also feels very focused. I think traditionally with video games, you either have the sort of uncharted style, very linear uh, cinematic kind of game, or you have the big, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn open world kind of go anywhere, do anything. And this God of War feels open and expansive, but also feels very focused. How did you pull that off? Uh, well, for starters, uh, internally, we never referred to the game as open world. Hmm. We never wanted to make an open world game. We knew we wanted to make a bigger world, a world that you can explore and a world where the user could have freedom. And I think, obviously, open world games have all of that. Um, but we never set out to make an open world game. Um, and then Corey knew exactly what story he wanted to tell. Um, so I think the way kind of Rob and I tackled that together is almost making sure that you knew what your next story beat was, but offering clear off ramps for the player to go off and explore a little bit and kind of discover something new. I mean, that's something that I know, Jeff, we talked about offline, but a, a sticking point for me in a lot of open world games, self-described open world games, is you get this big, important mission. And then it's like, you know, find out who killed who killed your son or like you've been asleep in a coma and there's been a nuclear holocaust. Track down your family. But if you want, go up in a gas station. And I always feel as a player this push and pull between the narrative through line and the the fun of the game and exploration and what I felt very early on with God of War was this idea of you have a very important task that you are going about that is very important, important to you. But everything along the way, that a distraction, so to speak, everything along the way that isn't just that focused task also feels important toward your larger goal of your relationship with your son. And so I never felt as if when I was off a critical path that I was wasting my time or doing something narratively that didn't make sense. And I, I, I'm curious how much of that was, you know, you mentioned the off ramps and level design and also world design mixed with those little lines of dialogue of, or oh, we're going to get back into it. Or I guess we could explore as like obvious winks to the player experience more than the critical path. How did those two work in concert or did one happen after the other to encourage players to go explore more? For the exploration um, missions, we uh, deliberately talked about this early on. We said it cannot feel like it's a distraction. You're on a very important journey. So the way we wrapped that around it through narrative was to kind of say that all of it was in service to prepare your son for the greater journey. So everything you're doing you know, on these off-ramps, is to prepare both of yourselves for the journey and to gather resources to be better prepared for, you know, the, the critical path part of the story. And the other thing we did too with um, the favors, we almost thought about them as opportunities to create father-son moments. So a lot of the narrative has a, bit, a little bit of flavor of Kratos teaching um, Atreus some kind of life lesson or vice versa. Sometimes, you know, Atreus offers some insight um, toward 
you know, the, the, the Norse, Norse world to Kratos himself. Would you start there? Would you start with that idea of instead of, oh, hey, we can make a mission where, you know, you go <laughs> kill four of these. It's more like what what is the theme that we want to get across? Is that where yes, you would start? Definitely. That's really cool. You know, I think that uh, I wish I could remember who it was, but somebody uh, described this God of War as being one of the best edited games of all time. And that's something that really resonates with me in the sense that, Everything you do in the game, it's a big game. It takes a long time to do everything in the game. There's lots to do, but every single thing you do feels important and special. And it doesn't feel like you're, you know, collecting a hundred of these or, you know, you can go off and like Christian said, start your own gas station. Um, it, it was that a conscious decision to st- strip things away and not make uh, a million different kinds of things you can do? I think, I mean, everything was delivered. And I think the reason it feels that way is because we have two um, leaders, right? Rob's there to make sure that everything in the critical path feels, you know, triple A quality. And I was the counterpart on all the exploration who had the same job. Hmm. Um, and we were both able to kind of craft each area and, and make it feel special. Yeah, there's like a, look, if you buy a PlayStation, right, and you're told that you're going to get a God of War game, in the back of your head, you've got to be thinking, I'm going to pick up, like, world-class action adventure, right? And so you're trying to build a team and you're trying to build a, a game that really represents, you know, top-tier action adventure. Well, action adventure is all about variety. It's all about pacing. It is all about that editing, right? There's lots of games where you can play in different ways, but if you play an action adventure game, you really should feel like you're getting lost in the world. You should feel like there's a good mix of puzzles, exploration, narrative, combat, scenarios, variety, right? And so we put a huge amount of effort into playtesting, working with Corey, working with, you know, Shannon to make sure we have enough time to do everything. So a big part of it is just, you know, Sony making sure that they're executing on world-class action adventure as well. But yeah, you're pretty much sitting there playtesting over and over again, working with Corey doing a, a director playthrough over and over again. <laughs> I think we had like something like 16 groups of 20 playtesters come through, and I think we learned a tiny little new edit every time. Wow. Every time we would watch someone new, you know, there'd be certain rooms or certain puzzles you could look at and say, oh, yeah, that one's pretty much off the list. We're feeling feeling good about that one. But then you you would watch the 20 players and think, Ah, what if we could just get a few of them to be a little bit more interested in the the Mjolnir chest in this or the Mjolnir chest in this room? What if we could just get like a little bit higher percentage on people getting on top of that trap at, in mm. the in the spike trap room? And so because we had like all this support, all this, you know, it, a lot of it is Sony and a lot of it is Corey, a lot of it is the studio itself. I would say we were in a very uh, privileged situation to do the the edit over and over and over. Yeah, I think. You know, we definitely did editing. I know in exploration, we, we cut a few levels. Like, even even Niflheim was on a, on the verge of getting cut, but I fought so hard. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think beyond the edits, it's also, like Rob was saying, the iteration time. So throughout all those playtests, we were able to uh, focus in on certain things and just make them better and better and tune them. And that iteration was really key. With that stuff, do you guys have moments, and maybe they're for small things that I didn't notice or players didn't notice, but do you have things that are your favorite or something that you're very proud of that got got onto uh, when you're exploring or something in the world that is just the the creme de la creme for that design experience for you? (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, 
Well, like a simple example, actually, is just the tuning on the boat stories. Like, so mm. Adam Dolan, the guy who um, wrote a lot of those boat stories and was working with us on them, I think about like four playtests out from the end of the game, we had them on a one-minute timer and a 10-minute timer and like all these different timers that we were trying to get the balance of them correct. And every playtest, we would learn a little bit more. And so I won't go into them, but there's some invisible rules behind those boat stories and when they're allowed to trigger and when they're not, how long between boat stories they're allowed to play so that they don't become annoying. But hopefully just as you're going from one site to the next and just as you're starting to explore, they kick in at just the right times. And when we hear people say that it's doing that, it's it's very humbling, right? Because it's the type of thing that isn't exactly on the back of the box. (laughs) It's the type of thing that isn't going to hit you over the head if if it's right, but if it's wrong, you know, you're never going to be in the flow of it. Um, so I was, I was very happy with that. And right towards the end, I think Adam and I looked at each other and said, like, I think we got it. I think this is the right timing now. And yeah, that was really It's cool. so yeah. interesting in game design. There, there seems like a lot of things like that, that they're really, really hard to get right. And once you get them right, you don't notice it. But if you got them wrong, everybody would notice it. So all the oh, hard yeah. work comes into making something <laughs> invisible. Yeah. Yeah, I think for, for me, um, it's the, the dragons in the exploration spaces. So there was only the one dragon in the critical path, the one that's um, up in the mountain. Yeah. Um, but one day, we, do, we used to do weekly reviews with Corey on all the exploration spaces. And we had a Veyrgard, which was one of our large open air areas. And there's this huge staircase that goes up right at the start of the level. And then one day I was like, this corridor needs some kind of gameplay. Like, I wish we could add something to make this staircase not only grand, but also interesting gameplay-wise. And I was like, wouldn't it be cool if we added a dragon at the top and just <laughs> leading fire down the thing? And I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. And I don't know how much everyone believed that that would actually make it into the game. But the fact that it's in there, is, that, that's one of my proudest moments. That is so rad. I love it. I I love hearing you guys talk about this sort of handshake that would be you'd pass off between the critical path stuff and the exploration stuff. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about how that works? I mean, I think when somebody says level designer, I, I think there's very little un- real understanding from the vast majority of the community of what that job is. You know, I think oh. if you talk about a game like Overwatch, you kind of understand what how designing a level would be. But a game like God of War and sort of you guys passing off between these two different gameplay styles. What, how do you start and what is the process like? Oh, sure. Like, I guess for anyone interested in getting into level design or, you know, wonders how do you even do this as a job or as a career, level design is pretty much build geo and script. You know, that's kind of the two core skills. But then there's like hundreds of other things, you know, that are ancillary to that. So on a game like God of War, take like the you know, stonemason level, for example, right? A stonemason level, you know, the one with the fallen giant. Right. It That's a good, you know, 60 to 90 minutes of gameplay. And it takes someone pretty much at our studio three years of dedicated, you know, time to get that 60 to 90 minutes to feel like it's perfectly directed and, you know, hopefully really well paced and getting everything Corey's looking for inside it, right? So there's a lot of collaboration with the different departments and a lot of, like, um, Well, sometimes we have like a bit of an internal joke that, you know, all roads lead to level design when it comes to content because we are getting a lot of people's effects in the game and environment art in the game and little narrative moments and little moments with the sun and his tuning. Um, 
And so to do that, you really got to live in that level for a while. And that's true whether you're on the exploration side or whether you're on the critical path side. It, it basically is um, the intersection of a lot of different people's content coming together. Wow. So how does that work? Are, are you, I mean, if, are you kind of, you know, I'm sure you concept out certain things. There's a, a grand story. I'm talking very, very early on in the process. And then as you start building these spaces, uh, Luis, do you come in and say, oh, I'd love to carve out a little corner of this to build out some exploration thing? Or, or how does all that work? So the the hub, uh, the Lake of Nine, was there from the start. And that kind of was not only like the nexus of all the realms for in terms of the mythology, but it was true for our game as well. We started there. And the game kind of grew from that center point of that Caldera Lake, the Lake of Nine. Um, so that was kind of the starting point for us. And we knew that that was going to be the center of our entire world. And then from there, we built out all the dungeons and different levels for exploration kind of independently and not even knowing exactly where they would go. And the way I structured it was um, having different types of levels. So we had three big open air levels which were our kind of premier spaces where a lot of the resources were going to go into those levels. And then we had um, the Holdra levels, which we knew were going to revolve around Brock and Sindri and all of their narrative. And those also got a lot of resources in terms of narrative and cinematics. And then we had um, the islands and beaches, which are scattered throughout the uh, Lake of Nine. Mm -hmm. And those were also created kind of independently, and we moved those around throughout the project. Uh, several times to kind of get the perfect pacing in terms of where they at, where they are at and getting the POIs to read well from a distance. Uh, and then we had our labors, which are um, smaller missions. So kind of breaking it down into those different cat categories helped kind of the team understand what quality or how much investment we had to give to each one of those. And then from there, it's kind of flexible in terms of moving them around where they where they went. Yeah, part of it is about making sure the gameplay doesn't overlap as well. Like when you go to, a, as I sometimes call it, Waterwheel Island in the in the Lake of Nine, mm -hmm. it's really about mastery of the vibrate mechanic or the the shock arrows, right? And then one of the other ones, it's really more about using the the winds of hell. And so I was really happy that the designer Mark was able to carve each gameplay section up to be sort of like a test your might or test your mastery of these different level mechanics. In terms of how we got it to sort of flow in and out of the story and get the exploration and the story to intersect with each other. If you strip away the Lake of Nine, it's pretty similar to something like, you know, Disneyland, right? It's a hub spoke <laughs> design, which is pretty much the most, you know, famous exploration design of all time. Pretty much every game designer knows what a hub spoke is and how it works. And the Tears Temple in the middle is kind of like the Mickey statue at the at the middle of Disneyland. Right. And it's it's no coincidence that you know, quite a lot of game designers like the hubspoke philosophy because it is the thing that lets you sit in the middle and spin the camera around and look at all the different options available to you. And it is the thing that has lots of pathways leading to, you know, in the case of Disneyland, it's, oh, Adventureland's over there, Tomorrowland's over there. When God of War, it's like, oh, there's a big gate over there. Well, I see two giant statues over there. I see some bones over there. All those three things are pretty interesting to look at from a central location. So it gives you a lot of autonomy as to which one you want to pick and choose, and, and that's sort of the essence of choice, right? 
that's the same thing at Disneyland. When you stand at the Walt statue and the Mickey statue, you, you kind of get to make a decision yourself. It's almost like picking what quest you want to go on, right? Yeah, right. we call them districts for, yeah. for the Lake of Nine. And um, I think one, one thing is that the art department wants everything to look natural. And so at one point, they actually really hated the idea of making everything Disney in terms of different districts and making different sections of the caldera look unique or stand out. Right. Um, but as we went along, I think the, the art lead, John Parlamarchuk, which, which was my, um, you know, we worked together on all the exploration stuff. So he did, he was the art lead for all of the uh, Lake of Nine and all of the uh, favors. Um, I think over time he saw the value in that. Um, and by the end he was all, on board with it and, and was like, anything you need, man. Like if you want, <laughs> if you want something to stand out, just let me know. If something's not reading well, let me know and, and I'll take care of it for you. That's so cool. Um, I, you know, when I talked to Corey uh, before the game came out, one of the things uh, that we talked about was the the one single camera shot that the entire game plays out in and how difficult that was to pull off. Very difficult. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, on a level design perspective, the challenges that that presented to you guys? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, for me, on, on a technical level, it made it so that we couldn't use some of our old old tricks. So usually <laughs> when you when you cut, it gives you a frame or two to teleport the player huh. and, and, and put all the actors kind of where they need to be for the next scene. And so that, that was one basic thing that we just couldn't do anymore. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think in the old days there was kind of this, or at least when I remember working on games on like PS2 or whatever, there was kind of this idea that the cutscenes would go on right near the end. You know, you wouldn't really have all the story coming up front, and sometimes you didn't even really know what the story was going to be. You were more focused on making the levels or making the environments or making the, you know, gameplay moments and scenarios and stuff. And the story was kind of, you know, a layer on top of it all, right? And over the last 10, 15 years, people have been doing fabulous things with stories, amazing things. And so when Corey was so passionate about the story he wanted to tell, one of the big development changes was starting to work out really early on where all the story beats were going to be, which is, you know, a bit unusual, especially when God of War in the past hasn't had tons and tons of storytelling in it. So we really did have to work out fairly early how everything was going to trigger because you can't cut and there, there isn't lots of opportunities to hide stuff. So you really, you really have to think about it, you know, as part of the core layout and as part of the initial pass. Um, otherwise, you're going to be moving stuff around forever and then it just won't feel very tight. And then I think another thing uh, on the technical side is it meant that we had to actually physically stitch all the levels and they have to physically connect with each other. Yeah, they do. It was a huge undertaking. Yeah, they do. They really do. So so how do you do that? I mean, are you are you putting them into a computer program that literally has a big giant layout that you know stitches everything together? Um, not really. No. no. <laughs> A lot of hard work. Um, so I, the way, so each area kind of lives in a different Maya file. Mm. And, and so we just kind of have to know, you can reference other Maya files. Uh. And so we reference one and then we kind of build the next level right where the previous one ends. Yeah, it, do, it does take a lot of planning. Um, like I remember the first time we actually got Kratos transitioning really nicely into a cutscene and transitioning 
from one level to the next, those were really big milestones, you know, uh, sort of more emotional milestones on the project than, than production ones. Because the first time we, we could go up the foothills, leave the Lake of Nine, take the gondola back down and re-enter the Lake of Nine and see the, the Tears Temple again, we were like, okay, we got it. It's, it, you know, like, this is it. This is the experience. It's yeah. not going to be an open world game. But look, you know, you are going to be able to leave these areas and without having a, a cut or without having a load screen, we're going to be able to get you all the way through that and all the way back down. And once we showed the team that, I think it was one of the big team meetings where we put it up on a big projector and everyone can see it. I remember afterwards, so many people came over to us and said, like, okay, now I get it. Now, like, <laughs> that, that looked really cool. Right. That looked really smooth and that looked really elegant. And then I think um, the first time you see one of those things, it gives you a lot of confidence to just keep going. Yeah, I think for me, uh, one thing that I, I didn't realize at the start of the project was the effect that it was going to have, you know, playing the game at home with no cuts. Yeah. So when I, t- when I took the build home and, and started playing, what I found was I didn't want to stop. Right. Yeah. Like, like there's no clear stopping point at any time. So it's just like, okay. This thing happens. It's like I want to keep going. I want to keep going. And because we don't have cuts, you're you're in it the whole time, and and you just want to keep going and going and going. And and that was really cool to find out. Yeah, I I think it is an extraordinary thing, and more than just the seamless no no cutting. The fact that the camera itself is treated like a physical object in the world that you feel like there's actually someone holding a camera, you know, participating. It feels like it was filmed by somebody, which I think gives the entire world a sense of realism, you know, because it feels like you're in a place that someone photographed rather than a video game. Well, our uh, cinematic um, Dory... Our cinematic guy, I mean, he literally was holding a camera the whole time. And so he did shoot it. So it feels that way because it was that way. Yeah. So, so explain to me how that all works, right? Because you did shoot in a volume. Corey directed actors who Mm -hmm. you motion captured in a volume. Uh, but you guys were building these geometries, you know, around those performances and for gameplay, uh, you know, in addition to those performances. So, did you have to do that before all of that stuff was blocked and shot? Did you have to know the geometry of the world? And then did it alter how you created gameplay experiences in those geometries? So um, it, I think it was a mix. So some areas, we well, we knew the schedule in terms of when they were going to shoot what scenes. So we always tried our best to prepare those levels and, and have them be locked down and ready for that shoot. Um, and then other times we didn't and and they shot and then that determined that space for that level oh wow um but in either case after we shot that meant we were locked geometry locked and we could not do any changes in those scenes yeah i mean fortunately like the first demo for this game was Kratos and Atreus hunting right that was the thing that Corey showed Shuhei and Scott Rohde and um Sean Layden and everyone and that demo um, is pretty cinematic, right? Like, yeah. I wouldn't call it like a vertical slice necessarily. I don't think we look at things quite in those terms. But the thing that's nice about that demo is you can pull a lot of um, development tropes out of it. Like, oh, this is how one of these, you know, father-son moments will work. Or this is how one of these climb transition into cinematics will work. And so that demo is actually extremely helpful for teaching the team how some of these things were going to work. So when they would go and have to shoot some new scenes. We had a little bit of a language like, oh, this will be like 
um, a door transition into cinematics. So we'll just make sure we shoot it so that it has a transition from a door. Or this is going to be like a lift point. Or this is going to be a climb. Or this is going to be where you sync with a character. Mm-hmm. And so we started to build a bit of language and a bit of rules as to how we would transition you in and out of the scenes. And how we, did the... Sorry, go, go ahead, ahead, Christian. Also, you guys mentioned uh, how, you know, when you sit down and you play the game, there's no cut, so you want to keep playing. But you also have to realize that people have other responsibilities, unfortunately, and we need to stop playing the game. And Jeff had mentioned it to me, you know, as well, how well it handles picking up where you left off and it never punishes you from, oh, your kid's crying and, you you know, you got to get up at 2 a.m. and you can't get your game time in. To what extent is that built into level design or is that a completely different system that works on top of of what you two did? Or are you, are you creating these moments within the world where, it's constantly checkpointing you and allowing you to step back into the game without having lost an hour of game time. So I, I think there's probably three things that help toward that, right? So I think banter and, and narrative always helps. So when you jump back in, they kind of reinforce what you're supposed to be doing. The other tool that we have is the compass, and you can always check that, turn that on, and know exactly where you're supposed to go. And I think the third is um, the level design. So, so the level layout should be strong enough where you don't need a compass. Um, at one point in the project, we were not going to have the compass. We didn't know if we were going to have it or not. And, um, and I, I was confident in our designs and, and our POIs that we set up throughout the world that we didn't have to have one. Um, but, but I'm glad we do because that's, that's a lot of pressure on us to be able to deliver on that. It's an amazing thing that how late in the game you get that because I, you know, you play for like two hours before and then it's like, Oh, there's a comp. Oh, this is what this game is. Like it's going to be big yeah, enough I mean, that I'm going to need this. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? Yeah. That it comes late. Yeah. 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 I mean, cause it's a deliberate decision, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that, that sense of scale and scope. I mean, you are you. Is there a deeper decision than than just a sort of a cool moment for the player? I think there is. I think the game wants exploration to keep expanding every two hours. Ah. Like, I, I think in. I, I was a little bit surprised working with Corey on some of this stuff because I'd come from more of an open world background, and in open worlds, it's a golden rule: get the player to the sandbox in sixty minutes. Right. right. If you if you spend three hours keeping a player in a, you've all played open world games. You know the kind of games you like, but usually the the delta to get a player into a sort of open world or exploration experience, if it goes for too long, players are like, well, why am I doing this? Right. Or this just feels too slow, or you know these types of things. Right. Different games do it different ways, but in this game, Corey had a very very specific vision, which is he loves things like Never Ending Story or Labyrinth or all these '80s adventures movies where the world kind of always feels like it has more mysteries or more secrets or or more to uncover, right? So to actually accomplish that in gameplay, he had some very strong ideas that maybe, you know, somewhat counter to what you might think would be good game design or at least what the game design handbook might tell you. So he would say things like, I want the the Lake of Nine to be foggy initially, right? And I think Luis and I at first were kind of thinking, oh, well, how are they going to, you know, find, find yeah. content and see things, right? Yeah. But he's like, well, that's the cool part, man. You're missing why this is cool. And <laughs> they go to, into the fog. They're going to think, oh, there's just a few secrets here and there. They're going to think it's a pretty small world, right? And then it was once you come back from Alfheim, well, the fog is lifted. So, oh, wait, hold on. What's that over there? Is that a gate? Is that some bones? What are those things? Yeah. And then you get the second water drop and you're like, 
oh, whoa, there's like double stacked puzzles in this game and more <laughs> ways to unlock them. You know, part of it is, you know, giving the player more and more stuff so that we can actually gate some of the combat and gate some of the item gameplay and gate um, how we dole things out. But part of it is, I, I think Corey had a really cool philosophy in the end, which was, yeah, I want you to constantly feel like there's more secrets and more more hidden mysteries. That compass, it kind of represents the first beat in the back of your head where you might be thinking there's more to the game than meets the eye. I wonder if uh, world, yeah. it so being cool. God of War gave players or, or you guys a little more flexibility with that, right? Because someone coming to the God of War franchise isn't like, this is Fallout 5, I better get in that sandbox quick. We've never had that before in the God of War experience. Um, I mean, the Nokia cell phone game was very linear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, so, you you know, you, it's obviously this big AAA game. It's beautiful, shown at E3s and PSX, and it, it's going to expand the audience. I'm sure this is some people's first God of War, and it, it welcomed them. It didn't punish them for having not known the franchise too well before. But also, as I'm sitting down, having played every God of War, and it's marching me through a, a forest, I'm not feeling this desire to go explore immediately, right? Like I'm getting into this world and I wonder if that gave you guys a little more flexibility to play with that design and start doling it out versus if you buy Skyrim, you know what you're getting into, right? If they put me in a, a hallway for three hours in Skyrim, I would be like, is this Doom? Did I, <laughs> is this the wrong Bethesda game? What, what am I doing here? Yeah, absolutely. Like um, because it is a, a soft reboot and because it is, you know, a, a new world, I think Corey would talk about it. He talks about a lot, a stranger in a strange land. Well, anytime you can echo that on the player as well, then Kratos and the player are going to be somewhat aligned. So part of it is introducing them to the world and the different concepts, as well as just teaching them how the new gameplay works. So the start of the game is, you know, pretty linear. I mean, we give you some side paths you can go off. And we did have them bigger at one point even. But that initial experience is about, connecting with your son and hunting and doing the simplest task, which is just, you know, moving through a space together and tracking something. Um, so it's very important to set up that initial tone. And then in the river pass level, we need to teach you some advanced concepts. We need to teach you how things like weapon specials work and how, um, you know, uh, advanced combat works crafting. and how crafting works and all these things. And so inside areas like there's a boneyard inside, um, where you fight the troll, the, the design of that area is such that it's meant to start planting more and more ideas in your head that there might be more and more exploration and more and more options so that you don't feel like you're on too much of a, a rail or anything like that, but also so that you're starting to slowly warm up to how exploration works and some of the ideas and some of the concepts so that when we do hit you with a lot more of it, you kind of already know how some of it works. It's so cool. <laughs> I... I want to talk a little bit about Atreus because another, I think, big part uh, that seems to me it must have been a big challenge for you is dealing with uh, this AI character. And clearly there was uh, a number of people responsible for making Atreus and making his behavior seem realistic and interesting. But I'm sure that impacted level design as well. And I'd love for you to talk about what it was like, you know, having not only a player to deal with, but also uh, interacting with this AI character that had to be believable and not get hung up on things and not, you know, do something that would break the illusion. Yeah. From, I mean, the sun was something that was there from the start as well. That was a key part of Corey's vision. Um, so very early on um, 
on the design team, we, we did a lot of uh, test beds with the sun. And we just kind of did all kinds of crazy things. And we're like, what if the sun could do this? What if the sun could do that? And level designers were um, prototyping this stuff out, um, knowing that we'd have to use him in our levels. And so we tried to make him as useful and as fun and a counterpart to Kratos as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped a lot for the, the level design and, and being able to have all the, like a library of tools and mechanics um, that we can kind of sprinkled throughout the levels. Yeah, I mean, it's the, I remember back in the very early prototypes, we didn't have the sun working, right? We didn't have like an AI body working in our engine. So every level designer was um, taking the, the sort of green mesh of the character. They were taking the mesh of the character, skinning it green in the engine, and then just keyframe animating it around the level. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, because yep. the level designers at Sony are pretty technical and pretty versatile, right? So they're like, oh, well, I'm not going to wait for this feature just to prove out my idea. Just give me the raw mesh, and I'll make it green so everyone can see it in the level. And then I'll just, you know, animate him. What would it be like for him to actually translate something? Or what would it be like for him to drop down a a little rope for you or, um, you know, all these, what would it be like if you could cast magic, all these different ideas. And um, I I think, you know, even years on, you could go back and look at a lot of those test beds and, and see the kernel of the ideas. That's so cool. So, it, you know, you, you mentioned before also, you know, this this moment where you guys put the thing on the big screen and you showed that moment of being able to transition. Are you generally, is that, are, we, are you seeing the game in a very primitive state at that point? Or are you seeing it with art and assets and, and things like that? That's different for different parts of the game. Like the yeah. game is not all built at the same time. So kind of depends what you're looking at. Yeah. Um, the... For the sun, I remember one, you know, big sort of emotional milestone for the team. It's the simplest thing, but uh, Jason McDonald, the lead combat designer, did a presentation for, for the team, and all it was was Atreus shooting an AI for you and keeping him at bay for you. Mm-hmm. So simple, but it kind of felt like you were playing a co-op game without another player, right? You're like, oh, if I had a co-op friend playing with me, I would love if they kept AIs at bay for me. Or right. I would love if they helped manage the, the threats for me. And as soon as people saw that, that was another one of those moments where even though it was pretty early on, you could see the potential of how having a, a AI partner who participates in combat with you and, and wants to do things that help you in scenarios all the time would only be a value plus. I think Matt and, and Rich and Jason, they all talk about this a lot. The role of Atreus is always to make Kratos better and to make him you know, a value plus. The sun is never meant to be annoying or frustrating or steal your kills or yeah. you know, anything like never that. Never meant to be annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's times in the game where he's meant to you know, kind of, uh, rub Kratos the wrong way and even the player, and that's you know, <laughs> That was a, yeah, that was another cool reveal for me when I was playing the game is, uh, the, well, not that, yes, but I mean, the, whatever, Jeff, it wasn't that cool of a reveal. <laughs> no, 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 I, don't, I, don't, I mean, uh, the idea that I started, you know, putting points, uh, upgrade points, I, in games like this where you have a character like Atreus, I mean, there aren't very many of them, but it, it always feels like, no, I want to give the cool stuff to me to let me do cool stuff, not to the, the, you know, this thing that I'm not even directly controlling all the time. But I very quickly realized how fun and uh, effective it was to actually power up Atreus. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I want to give him cool things because it actually does make me feel cooler uh, when I'm playing. And I think that's a, not an easy thing to pull off. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, one key thing is that we thought of them as a one-two punch combo. And so I think if you look at Atreus, he also feeds into the three game pillars that we have. So he's useful in combat, you know, um, because of the arrows and he can take aggro away from, from Kratos. And he's useful in exploration because he has his own tools. He can fit in small spaces. He has his mother's knife that is magical and, and he can use that as well. And then in narrative, he can read. He can read the language of the Norse world. Right. Um, so I think making him useful and having him feed into the three main pillars is, is, was essential. You mentioned uh, kind of his, the way he can fit into different spaces. And I'm curious from a, a level design standpoint, how you balance designing a level around a god where there's a, a moment very early on where you're fighting a stranger and it's a man of steel smackdown right mm -hmm. like if you were in a metropolis there are buildings being demolished he climbs out of a huge crater um and just perfectly honestly there were only two moments in the game where i was like really uh where it's like boy <laughs> kick that chain down for me and i'm like kratos dog no dude you can get that you can you can dunk over to kembe you can get that chain um but how do you rest because here's a guy who i'm throwing an axe 500 feet uh, across a, a ravine and perfectly pinpoint hitting a thing to open a gate to do whatever and designing a world where and God of War games have always they've never let you fall off a cliff unexpectedly like sure, yeah. that's been part of the franchise mm -hmm. but how do you build a, a level around a god aside from just well it's a video game you, you can't climb that I think in that first chain drop moment I mean I think if Kratos really wanted to get up there like he probably would have found a way but it's more about letting his son do it Hmm. It's more about the fact that they're starting the adventure together. And, you know, also in that room, if you look at the um, hanging loot, as we call it, in there, the sun will tell you little things about, oh, these were left behind, um, you know, as um, uh, sacrifices for the god or treasures for the gods. And Kratos will say, you know, gods are stupid. You know, gods are ridiculous. And so a lot of the dialogue in that room is really not, hey, we're taking on the world's biggest challenge. It's more the call to adventure and them starting to learn with each other and something as simple as dropping a chain. I mean, yeah, I think Kratos could have got up there if he really wanted to, but he needs to teach his son how it works. <laughs> something that Corey would always say is like, you got to make the kid take the trash out. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I can remember that when my girls are older and they'll be like, dad, I'll be like, really? Atreus kicked the chain down. You can't take the trash out. I love, I love how taking the trash out for Kratos is literally, you know, destroying demons with your bow and arrow. That's awesome. Um, I, I, I should mention here in the in the chat, uh, Junos three six or six thirty uh, says, "Hey Jeff, please tell them it is by far the greatest game I've ever played." Aww, uh, so awesome. um, a lot of people I think uh, share that sentiment. Um, tell me, guys, this journey that you guys have been on uh, for multiple years, uh, Luis, you you worked on previous God of Wars. This game comes out, it gets this kind of reception. You've been working on it for you know five plus years. And that moment where the baby, you know, takes its first steps out into the world, what is that like? Just on a human level, what is that like for the team now that this thing that you've been working on in, in secret, to be honest, for, for so many years is out for public consumption and gets this kind of reaction? It's very nerve wracking. Um, so for example, like the, the reveal E3, uh, Sony did a great job in supporting our studio 
and and they were able to take out the entire team to the auditorium and we were all sitting there oh, wow and and the orchestra starts <laughs> and i i am getting chills all over my body <laughs> and, and i'm sitting next to people and they're like what is this what do you think it is and they just start guessing and i know what it is <laughs> and i'm freaking out yeah and then the reveal happens and and everyone's elated and for me it was just a deep sigh of relief at that point i was like whew they like it they like it <laughs> Yeah, that was super emotional. I remember checking the forums like right afterwards, which of course you never meant to do, but you can't help yourself. And, and then people were saying, Dad of War. Yeah. And, oh, man, like, oh, man, that's so reductive. But then they were, I realized, no, they're saying it because they like it. Right. Like, I, thought, I thought people were saying Dad of War because they were being a bit dismissive or something, right? But it turns out Dad of War was actually you know, inspiring the conversation and leading the charge on why people were ready for a change. Yeah, I think so. I think it was definitely a term of endearment, uh, certainly is for yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, and then the game comes out for real, you know, just a, a few weeks ago. And, and is there, is there a, a, is there a letdown? Is there a, oh my gosh, we've been working so hard on this, especially I'm sure there was a crunch period where you guys are really intensely working on the game to get it done. Is there, is there a hangover there? I mean, I think for me, it's, Throughout every milestone in the project, and I'm not talking about it internally, you know, I'm talking about like E3 and, and the game coming out and reviews coming out and all of that. I think it's the same emotions that I go through as, as I described with E3, where at first it's, it's a lot of, it's nerve wracking and, and I don't know what the reaction is going to be. And then just a sigh of relief when it's like, okay, cool. It's, they, they like it. And sometimes it, it, the reactions exceed my expectations and it's just, at that point, I'm just elated. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it's nice to see people supporting action adventure games, right? It's not yeah. like as popular a genre as maybe like a shooter or a mobile or something like that. But there's so much in the action adventure space that is cool and, and mythological and clever if you pull it off properly, right? So I, I hope it you know is a bit of a call to arm for more support for action adventure games and more um, unique games. I hope, I hope it inspires people to look at their own designs and their own franchise. I love what, um, you know, Assassin's Creed's done recently. And I love seeing where there's these storied franchise that people really know how some of the things already work in them, which is just the best, right? If you can give people a franchise that they're already excited about coming into, they come with some baggage, which can be used to your advantage and it can be used in your designs and it can be used to make clever moments. Um, so I hope, I hope it inspires, you know, just more support for developers to do cool stuff and take on interesting risks. But you know that in every developer studio in the world right now, there's the name of their game and then someone wa- walks in and writes plus kid. <laughs> <laughs> plus, yeah. Valkyrie? <laughs> plus Valkyrie. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing to me that a game that it was in development this long still feels like it's so far ahead of the curve in so many ways. I mean, because you imagine how the industry changed just over the course of the development, you know, the, what, you know, moved in and out of vogue during that period you know, we have battle royale games didn't even exist. You know, you guys were halfway through making this game and all that stuff. It's interesting to me that this vision can persevere through that and really still feel like it's predictive to where games are heading in the future, not just where they were in the past. Yeah, totally. Thank you. I mean, uh, 
I, I really do think a lot of it comes down to people's passion for this type of game. And, and when you have that passion on the floor, like Corey, the team, the design team, they're not just looking at what's been done before. Many people on this team, they come from like Skylander Studio or they come from Tomb Raider or they you know, come from God of War team. So all those people have tons and tons of ideas constantly on how to push the action adventure genre forward. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from. And really I think cool. another thing about our studio, it's, it's always about quality. Um, I think that trumps everything. Mm. Um, so whenever we get in, in, into any discussions about, oh, we should add this or we should add that, we'll how's that going to help the overall quality of the game? And then also asking yourself, how does that feed into the main three pillars of the game? What is X, Y, and Z going to service toward combat exploration or the narrative? And if it doesn't, then we don't, we don't need it. Right. Well, I have loved talking about this game with you guys, um, but we are in the playlist. So I'm curious if there are any <laughs> other games now that maybe you guys have some free time, are there other games that you have been playing? Uh, Luis, are there any other uh, video games that you've been playing and enjoying lately? I still have to finish uh, Breath of the Wild. So that's my next one that I'm going to get back into. I right. didn't get very far in that. Um, the last game I finished was um, Mario Odyssey, and I loved that game. So you're all but, about that Switch. Yeah, right now I'm in Switch mode and mobile mode. The other thing I'm playing, I'm like super addicted to... Uh, uh, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Oh, wow. I don't know if you guys know that. Oh, right. yeah. Super addicted to that game. That and, art is and, so good. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Marvel Strike Force just came out, which is almost like Star Wars Galaxy Hero, but with Marvel characters, so I'm super into that as well. So uh, that Disney hub in the yeah. middle is uh, <laughs> your phone, <laughs> and on one side is Marvel. So, so Disney on my phone and Nintendo at home. <laughs> How about you, Rob? What do you? What's on your playlist? Um, I just played through all of Frostpunk, which I thought was just fantastic. Oh, isn't it so good? I mean, it's very depressing, but it's so good. Oh yeah, and I totally had that experience, which you know everyone talks about, which is you look at your watch and you think, oh, what time is it? Like six thirty at night? And you're like, oh my god, it's eleven at night, because <laughs> <laughs> the one more turn sort of like just yeah. keeps going and going. And then. Um, Actually, like a Sony design team recommendation right now seems to be Dishonored 2 because uh, uh, really, really good game and, uh, you know, sort of like came and went maybe a little too quickly. Right. And so, uh, yeah, if anyone gets a chance to play that, it's a really excellent game. And, yeah, that, that Clockwork Mansion mission really is as good as people say. So. Yes, it is. I mean, that is, it's, that's a mind-boggling one. I'm sure from a design, uh, a, a level design perspective, that is probably something that, yeah, really scratches scratches your itch. Oh yeah, that's totally a level designer's like you know dream. That yeah, one. bravo to whoever made that one. <laughs> um, oh, the other thing I love too is Clash Royale. <laughs> you that are game. down the mobile rabbit hole, man. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Are you throwing uh, money at that game? <laughs> I did when it first came out. Not anymore. Um, but at first, I did. Um, I but I, I just love that feeling <laughs> when you outplay someone. And you know that they have better cards than you. You know they put down heavy money and then you still beat them. <laughs> There's no better feeling than that in the world. That is awesome. Also, after five years of game dev, your stamina is probably – you're probably ready to go. It's probably – yeah, you do right. one turn, put it down, yeah, come back Clash five Ro years later. <laughs> when Clash Royale came out, I think, like, design team uh, productivity hit an all-time low. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, anything you can play at your desk, right? While you're you know, doing mm -hmm. something else. Um, Rob, I need to know how how cruel you were to your to your people in in Frostpunk. Were you uh, uh were you passing laws that made them sacrifice their well being for your for your productivity? 
Uh, I'm proud to admit I did not make them eat soup until I also gave them moonshine. So. <laughs> awesome. That's the kinds of decisions in Frostpunk. It's so it's such a dark game. It's so good though. Um, awesome. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's wrap things up. We have, uh, really enjoyed our time with you hey, guys. I appreciate it. Um, let's, uh, wrap things up. We do have a parting gift coming up. So guys stick around for that. But, uh, Rob Davis and Luis Sanchez, thank you so much for being here. Tell people where they can keep up with you and, and follow the things that you do in the future. Oh, sure. You can find us on, you can find me on Twitter. It's just, it's Rob Davis, all one word. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. It's uh, Cheeto Bandito with two E's on both of those words altogether. Excellent. And uh, we will eagerly await what's next for Sony Santa Monica Studios. You guys. I think really... it's called Sleep, Jeff. Yeah, I, think I guess that's... it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like I said, I, you know, I'm, if this, if this game, and not to blow smoke, but if this game is not uh, the greatest game ever, it is in the conversation. So, uh, you know, well oh. done. Kudos to the team. It's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing piece of work. Quick, quick that, sidebar. I know you're wrapping it up. Uh, how often was boy yelled across the office? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think between boy and also around like six months from the end of the project, we got these giant foam Kratos axes. I think those, <laughs> started <flying laughs> the, boy and the Kratos axes seem to fly around. <laughs> Do they come back to your hand when you hold your hand out? That would be the real trick. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're really <laughs> huge. They're almost too big for that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right. Uh, well, let's wrap up the show now with our parting gift. Hey, give us a suggestion. Rob, do you have a suggestion to help people get through their week that might not be a video game? I do. It's my favorite podcast, Jeff, and it's called Song Exploder. I think a few people have heard about it by now, but it's really awesome. Uh, Song Exploder, they take a song that you might have heard of, and then they get the artist in, and they talk about how they made it and why they made certain decisions, and then they put it all back together and play the song for you. It's really good. Awesome. That's Song Exploder. I'm sure you can find it on iTunes or however you get your podcasts. Yeah. Uh, Luis, how about you? Do you have a parting gift? Play some Marvel Strike Force. <laughs> and you will get out right now, everybody. He's he's knee deep in a in a battle. <laughs> That's I, mean, awesome. I don't know. I mean, get get out into the world and, and go find an art exhibit. Um, I recently went to Catalina Island, and I uh, found an exhibit there on the art of Jaws, and it was fascinating i loved it that is awesome yeah that's great that's a great recommendation you know i've been in la for years and <laughs> i still haven't been to catalina i've intended to go to catalina like five times and i've never actually made it there but I'm, I'm if you have one day you can kill it in one day um, all right yeah. it's supposed to be really cool like no cars it's all like you know golf carts mm -hmm. right because there's no cars yeah. in the island yeah. yeah it's a it's a tiny little town packed with lots of goodness that's awesome uh, Christian, how about you? You got a parting gift? Well, this is a game. I've, I've joked about it before, um, and I need to say it, especially on this episode, um, and I'll hum, hum, hum about how you can play it. But God of War Betrayal was the first video game that, <laughs> that taught me. <laughs> how many games could work on phones? Like, other than, like, Snake on your BlackBerry? I remember when that game dropped. I was like, oh, Daddy's buying a new phone just for a game. Uh, and like I said, hum, 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 on how you can still play it today. But it was really well done. It was really well done. That's that's the Nokia game that people <laughs> joke about, but no one says its name. It's God of War Betrayal. Check it out. <laughs> 
Not, not what I was expecting you to say. I appreciate that. Uh, we did get a, a listener-suggested parting gift. This was sent to dlcfeedback at gmail.com, or you can send any of your comments or questions about the show, but also send your parting gift suggestions. This comes from Alex Gerhard. He says, uh, hey, guys, been a huge fan of the show for years now, and beyond all the fast, fantastic games I found through the show, I've always found Christian's music-related parting gifts to be a real game-changer. So I thought I would recommend one of my favorite bands to you. Jukebox the Ghost just released their latest album called Off to the Races, and it is absolutely fantastic. This three-piece band features two different lead singers. Ben is legitimately my generation's Freddie Mercury, which is immediately clear within the first 30 seconds of the album. And most songs Tommy sings lead on are some of the most catchy, upbeat pop-punk tracks I've heard in years. The song Boring is my current favorite with a positive spin on getting old and boring. Thanks so much for continuing being my favorite podcast. Uh, We thank you, Alex, for that great parting gift. Again, that is Jukebox the Ghost and their album Off to the Races. Is that one you're aware of, Christian? I am, but I have not heard this new album, so I'm excited. Very cool. Uh, My parting gift is strawberries and not just any strawberries guys uh i went to the strawberry festival today with my with my family and uh there's a difference between strawberries you get in a store and strawberries you get at from a farm like at a farmer's market or the side of the if you're in california you can get them like on the side of the road uh they are different they are very different uh and i highly recommend if you've only ever had strawberries from your supermarket go to a farmer's market and get yourself some strawberries I highly recommend sour cream and brown sugar. Dip it in the sour cream, dip it in the brown sugar, and then have a little uh, strawberry. Uh, uh, very, very good. But I had today I had something called strawberry nachos, which uh, blew my mind. It was um, like uh, a fried flour tortilla with cinnamon and sugar and then strawberries and whipped cream. And you, it's like a, like a nachos. Um, it was incredible. Incredible. So there you go. There you have it. Uh, our parting gifts. That is going to do it for this episode of DLC. Thanks again to Rob Davis and Luis Sanchez for being here. Thanks to Christian Spice for hanging out with me for the whole show. Thanks to all of the folks in our chat rooms. We appreciate you guys hanging out and making the show better in real time as well. And thanks to all of you who download the show. We will be back next week. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place.